Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We'll get there in just a few moments. It's been our family's habit for a few years now with five children. The school year is really hectic and crazy, and then the summer is usually equally as busy. So right after school gets out, before June hits, we try to get out of town for about a week and just spend some time, just our immediate family together. And that's what we did last week. In order for me to do that, I had to pre-record the Sunday morning's sermon, knowing that I was going to be uh, out of town. And because of that, I was unable to say anything about the cultural events that are going on around us at this moment. In God's providence, I'm really grateful for that. I'm grateful for my inability to speak to the issues. I'm grateful for the fact that I did not have a platform at that moment to say something. Because what I've realized as I looked back on that is I needed to be quiet. I needed to stop, I needed to listen, I needed to pray, I needed to try to discern what it is the Lord was saying. I talked in my midweek message on Wednesday about our need to lament. How important it is for us to just stop for a moment and enter into the pain and enter into the suffering without opining or speaking or posting or saying anything, just to enter into the pain of the moment, to lament the death of George Floyd, to lament with the way in which the black community is feeling, to lament for the struggle of our law enforcement officers, to lament for the state of our nation and to lament about the state of our church. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says that there is a time to weep. In church, that time is now. If there's ever been a time to weep, it is this moment as we watch what we read from Psalm 46 a moment ago as the nations are raging and the kingdoms are tottering. We need to let our hearts break. We need to enter into the pain and the suffering. And what we learn from the book of Psalms, a third of which are laments, is that as we begin to lament, meaning we just pour out our hearts to God and we express our feelings and our emotions to God, whether right or wrong, we just pour them out. In very honest ways, we say, God, this is how I feel. This is what is going on in my heart. That it is in that process that God begins to speak. It is in that moment that God begins slowly but faithfully to change our hearts. The tragic murder of George Floyd on May 25th hit a nerve in our nation. Now, for a moment, let's just agree on that one fact. It hit a nerve in our nation. It hit all kinds of nerves in our nation. And when you hit a nerve, you don't ignore it, you examine it. You start to see where the pain is coming from and you try to find the source of it. You don't ignore a nerve, you examine it. It is moments like this that God gives us that allows us to be able to stop and to examine our hearts. Just think about our emotional responses this week. Think about your emotional responses. One of my favorite authors, Dan Allender, says that emotions are a window into our hearts. So what was our emotions this week when we watched the video 
of George Floyd's death, when we saw the videos of the protesters and everything else going on around us, what is our emotional response? Because that emotional response is revealing something to us about our hearts. But if we don't stop for a moment and allow us to feel those things, and then upon feeling those things to examine where those things are coming from, we will never round the corner to heal from God and to receive what it is that he wants us to receive in this moment. In other words, moments like this and the way in which we feel in these moments cannot be ignored. They must be examined. And for me, this has been a moment in which I have examined my love for my neighbor or maybe my lack of love for my neighbor. I can't stop thinking about the two inseparable commands in Matthew 22. In verses 37 through 40, Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Now that last statement is incredible. That if you take all the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, everything that God has said up until this point, Jesus says, you could take all of that and summarize it in these two statements. Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength and love your neighbor. But that's it. That is, that is the summary of everything that God requires. And then you have an entire book of the New Testament, 1 John, that is dedicated to showing us the inseparable connection between these two. This is why Jesus could not just say one. He said, and a second is like it. And then he says, on these two commands is based the whole law and the prophets. Because the book of 1 John shows us that if we want to really test the authenticity of our love for God, if we're wondering if our love for God is real or it's just show, if we genuinely have an authentic love for God, the way in which we evaluate that is by looking at our love for neighbor. It's almost as if John knows when he writes 1 John, it's easier to fake our love for God than it is to fake our love for neighbor. So while I'm looking like I love God, if I don't love my neighbor, I myself can know that I actually don't love God. And over and over, 1 John tells us that this is the way that you can know that you're actually a believer, that you have an authentic relationship with Christ. How do you treat your neighbor? 1 John 4.20 even says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his neighbor, he's a liar. That's a pretty direct statement that if you say you love God and you hate your neighbor, you are in fact a liar. The true authenticity and the test of our authenticity of our faith rests in how well we love our neighbor. And then you take probably the most important text of scripture on what it means to love our neighbor. The little story in Luke chapter 10 of the Good Samaritan. And you realize that it is a passage about race and nationalism that it is a text that very much addresses the feel of the moment that we're in right now as a nation. That what Jesus does with this story is he exposes a man's lack of love by exposing to him the depth of his nationalism and racism. That he loves himself, he loves his nation, 
But because those two things are so deeply rooted, he is blinded to his lack of love for neighbor. And so this morning, I wanna take just a break from our study of Psalm 23, and Lord willing, we'll get back to that next week. And I wanna examine this passage with the hopes of it examining our hearts, that we would take the way in which we're feeling and all the things going on in us right now and ask the Lord to show us something about ourselves and to ensure that our love for God is authentic. Now it tells us in Luke 10, you can see that in verse 25, that Jesus is having a conversation with a lawyer. Now by lawyer, it means someone who studies God's law. This is a Jewish man who has spent his life studying the law of God. He is a theologian. He's a professor. He knows the law of God. Now we know that him approaching Jesus was not pure in his motives because it says this in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He didn't have an authentic desire to learn something from the Lord. He was testing him by saying this, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus then puts him to the test. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, Verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds, well, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. I say, was was Jesus preaching a gospel of works? Absolutely not. But this man was not coming with a desire to know how to be saved. He was coming with a desire to, to justify himself. He didn't think he needed someone to justify him. And so what Jesus does is is he shows him, listen, what what do you think? Well, I think I have to love God and love my neighbor. This man believes that he has done that perfectly. But Jesus knows that there is no way to do that perfectly. This man will never be saved until he understands his need for a savior. You see, the truth is, is none of us will ever be able to love God perfectly, nor will be able to love our neighbor perfectly, and we needed someone who loved that way for us. And so that is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we were utterly deficient in every way to stand before God as holy and righteous and pure people. So Jesus lived a life of perfect love for God and neighbor, never sinning, dying on our behalf, so that as we trust in him, he might take upon himself the penalty for all of our lack of love and then give to us his perfect love for God and neighbor. We need someone to be our justifier. We need someone to die on our behalf, but this man did not understand that. Then it says in verse 29 that the man desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? I don't know why, but the man wasn't done. It wasn't enough. He was gonna continue to test the Lord. He was gonna continue to make a case for himself. There is never a case to be made for our own goodness and love, but this man was trying to make a case for himself. So he says, well, well, who is my neighbor? Now, the word neighbor was a loaded word in this context. The Jews were at home in Jerusalem, but surrounded by people they hated. They were under the rule of the Roman Empire, and there was a lot of tension and hatred there. They were surrounded by all of these small other people groups that they viewed as much less than them. And the greatest of those was the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half-breeds. 
partly Jew, partly not Jew. And there was no one that the Jews despised more than Samaritans. They also believed that God shared their opinion of the Samaritans and also despised them. We have to come to this text understanding that the Jews at this moment were primarily nationalist. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that they believed that as a nation, they were superior to every other nation. That God had put something special upon them so that they felt now superior. You say, wait, God did do something special with the nation of Israel. Absolutely. He chose them out from all the other nations, not because of their goodness, but because of his mercy. And he did it for this one purpose. That by pouring out his blessing upon this nation, they might then reveal to all the other nations how much God loves them. This was not about how special they were. It is about how good God was and his desire to use them to make his name known and his love known to everyone else. But they had missed the heart of God and become self-consumed. So he said, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells this familiar story. He says in verse 30 that there was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed and left him half dead. So just get the mental picture in your mind. Here's a man who was walking. He was approached by robbers. He was beaten. He was stripped of his clothes and there he was lying in a pit, almost dead. It then tells us in verse 31 that a priest was going down the road and he saw him and passed by the other side. He did see him, but he went to the other side of the road and just kept walking. It then tells us in verse 32 that in the same way, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, also passed by on the other side. They both saw him. They both went to the other side to avoid him. and Neither one of them stopped and did anything. This is a pastor and a worship leader, both Jews. But then it says this in the most surprising way. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, verse 33, came to where he was, and here it is. He saw him, just like the priest and the Levite. They all saw him, but the Samaritan did something differently. He had compassion. It says he went to him, he bound up his wounds, He poured oil and wine on him. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So the Samaritan not only saw him, but he stopped. He not only stopped, he bound up his wounds. He not only did that, but he picked the man up and laid him on his own animal, meaning that the Samaritan was now going to have to walk the rest of the journey so that the beaten man could ride. At great sacrifice and great cost to himself, in an act of extreme inconvenience, the Samaritan steps in and he acts on behalf of the man who was beaten. Now, in many ways, Jesus is pointing to himself here. Jesus is the ultimate good neighbor. This text points us to Jesus Christ because the reality is we are all the beaten man, stripped and left for dead. And Jesus sees us, he feels compassion for us, he binds our wounds, he carries us, and then he pays for it all. This is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what Jesus is saying here to this Jewish 
theologian is that this pagan Samaritan understands love more than you do. That yes, you have spent your life studying love. You have examined every text. You know what love is. You can define love. But yet here's a pagan Samaritan who somehow displays love better than you do, even though you might mentally understand it better than he does. It's a shocking statement. And then Jesus asked him a question. Look at what it says in verse 36. He says, now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, Jesus didn't answer the lawyer's question. The lawyer said, who's my neighbor? But Jesus asked him this question, who proves to be the neighbor? You see, what the lawyer wanted to know is, Jesus, who do I have to love? And then Jesus responds with a question trying to expose to the man that the issue is not who you were supposed to love. The answer is this, who are you? Lawyer, who are you? I'm not gonna give you a category of people that you were to love and not love. I want to ask you a question. Who proves to be the good neighbor? The answer is, as he says there, the one who showed him mercy. He turns it around on him. And he says, this is not about who you were supposed to love. It's about who you are. Now, I need you to think about this with me for just a moment. That in, in the mind of this lawyer, the phrase good Samaritan is an oxymoron. We say it all the time. It's a part of our normal uh, statements, not only as believers, but as unbelievers. We talk about good Samaritans. For a Jew, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Samaritans were not good, nor could they do anything good, nor in their minds did God ever view them as good. And so what Jesus does in this moment is he uses a Samaritan as an example of love to expose the lawyer's hate. He uses a Samaritan as an example of love in order to expose the lawyer's hate because what Jesus knows is this, is when he talks about a Samaritan as a model of love, the emotional response that wells up in the heart of the lawyer is going to reveal the fact that he is not a loving neighbor. You see, sometimes when God wants to show us something, he doesn't use a club he uses a scalpel. This is what happens. Jesus uses this conversation to very, very gently open up this man's heart and show what was inside. And when this man hears a story in which a Samaritan is used as an example of love, a pagan Samaritan, it exposes his own heart. And what he sees there is that he is not a loving neighbor. Then Jesus makes it even worse. Look at what he says in verse 37. You go, he says to this Jewish lawyer, and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Now remember, there's this inseparable connection between our love for God and love for neighbors. So here's a man who is proud of his love for God. He was justifying himself in his own love for God then all of a sudden, through his emotional response to the circumstance and the story, Jesus opens up and shows him that he has no love for neighbor, therefore he doesn't love God. He says, you go and do likewise. Now, my question is, what is the likewise? 
because this is a statement for us. If we cannot separate love for God than love for neighbor, and if our love for neighbor is the true test of our real love for God, we better understand what it means to do likewise. And when Jesus says you go and do likewise, he is showing us the two pillars of neighborly love. The two pillars of what it means to love your neighbor, they are simply this. To love your neighbor is to feel empathy and show mercy. Well, so what does it mean to love my neighbor? It is to feel empathy and show mercy. They both come from the text. It tells us that this man felt compassion on him in verse 33. He walked by just like everyone else, but the difference in the Samaritan is that when he saw a man stripped and beaten and left for dead, he felt something. Now that word compassion is really a word that means to be deeply moved by someone else's suffering. It is what we would call empathy. It is to enter into someone else's pain, to enter into someone else's suffering, to put ourselves in that person's place, to stop for a moment and let our hearts break by what we see, to feel empathy. The Samaritan stopped long enough and looked long enough to be moved by the suffering of the beaten man, to feel empathy, and then to show mercy. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? To which the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. Mercy is empathy in action. It's not enough to feel empathy. It is one of the pillars. It starts there. It is the beginning of neighborly love. But once we feel empathy, we then show mercy. We act sacrificially on behalf of the one who is suffering. Love steps in. Love binds wounds. Love anoints with oil. Love carries another man. Love gets into the pit, gets blood upon his own clothes, and he helps. The two pillars of neighborly love are feeling empathy and showing mercy. Now this text does to me what it did to the lawyer. It takes a scalpel and it exposes my heart. And because the Lord has made me feel so deeply this inseparable connection between loving God for, uh, and others and knowing how easy it would have been for me as a preacher to be like the priest and the Levite, to display this incredible knowledge of the word of God and love for God in a way that you think I love God, but yet if I don't love neighbor, I'm just a fake. And so it is, I'm asking the Lord to reveal to me the depth of my love for neighbor if I am feeling empathy and showing mercy. And as I think about this, I just want to share with you the cry of my heart for us as a church in this moment from Luke 10. The first one is this, the cry of my heart is this, may we never justify in action. May we never justify in action. It says that the man was trying to justify himself. Every one of us does this. We all make excuses for why we shouldn't love someone. We all have excuses for why we should not feel empathy or show mercy. 
well, I don't, I don't have the gift of mercy. That's not my thing. Well, people are going to take advantage of us. I mean, where does this end? You help the guy, you bind his wounds, you take him and you pay a, a month's rent for him. Well, then he's going to expect you to pay the next month's rent. And I don't think we need to get into that kind of relationship with this man. I mean, I don't know anything about him. What about his family? What if they come after us? We're always making excuses. Well, listen, yes, I know, but, but that Muslim might be a terrorist. Yes, I know, but that, that homosexual has an agenda. Yes, well, that immigrant is illegal. Well, pastor, you don't know the black community. Hold on just a minute. Every single person that walks on the face of this earth is created by God, loved by God, and bears the image of God, and there is no excuse to not show mercy and feel empathy for every single one. That is absolutely, unquestionably true. There's no room for excuses. And what I feel in my own heart is my desire to justify my inaction. I mean, what do I feel when I, when I watch the, uh, the death of George Floyd or David Dorn, the black police officer who was killed trying to stop looters? What do I feel in that moment? Do I, do I try to say, well, he shouldn't have been there. Well, he shouldn't have done this. Well, he should, no, 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 no. God help me. God, God, help us not to justify our inaction because there is no justification for failing to feel empathy and show mercy. The next cry of my heart is, God, may we never callously walk by. May we never callously walk by. I, I have to tell you, maybe this text is a little personal to me because it's a pastor and a worship leader that walk by. How is it? that a student of the word of God, a theologian and a worship leader who was leading the people week after week in worship are the two that not only walked by, they went to the other side and walked by. Now that's a, that's a little scary for me because I think it is a specific reminder to those of us who show up and watch church or come to church when we can to remind us how easy it is for us to be rooted in nationalism and racism that we don't even see it ourselves. I've been thinking a lot this week about Rosa Parks. On December 1st of 1955, after a long day of work, she boarded a bus and she sat in the section for colored people. But the bus got full and the bus driver noticed that there were white people standing. So the bus driver stopped the bus, stood up, moved the section back to make less room for colored people and more room for white people. There were four people sitting in that row. Three of them moved, but Rosa Parks did not. She was tired of having to move. Now, as a white man, my question in that moment is this. Who's that bus driver? Who's the bus driver that stops his bus, sees white people standing, and feels in his heart that it is wrong for a white person to stand while a black person is sitting, and then says in a full bus to the black people, get up. And then what about the other white men in the bus that do not have the audacity to say to the bus driver, hey man, why don't you just leave him alone. Why don't you just go drive the bus? Like that's what I can't get over. And I, and I think to myself, God, hopefully, I would be a man who would stand up and say to the bus driver, hey man, go, just drive the bus. 
Let these people sit. But here's the deal. I'm not totally confident I would be that person as much as I would love to be that person because this is the same moment in which millions of church-going people in the South did not feel really bothered by a water fountain for colored people and a bathroom for colored people that they had been so blinded by the culture around them that it was possible for them to callously walk by all kinds of injustice without saying a word or feeling a thing. And I just pray, oh God, don't let me ever callously walk by. We are naturally naturally self-centered and naturally calloused by the world around us. And I just wonder what it is now, these massive areas of injustice that I'm not seeing And I want to see them now so that I might be a man who stands for what is right. Oh God, may we never justify our inaction. May we never callously walk by. But the next cry of my heart is, God, may we see ourselves as a beaten man. He said he felt compassion for him. This is that empathy. It begins here. The parallels here are are obvious. We are all the beaten man and Jesus is the good neighbor. Every single one of us, the only hope any of us have, the only goodness any of us have is because we've received it through Jesus Christ. That every one of us are the man that was stripped and beaten and left half dead, but yet in that state, Jesus came to us. He picked us up. He carried us himself. He paid everything for us. And so how dare we be callous towards the beaten man, knowing every one of us are in that same position if it was not for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ himself. And so then Jesus calls us, specifically us, who bear the name of Jesus Christ to listen, to stop, and just to try to feel what someone else is feeling. A few years ago, I was asked to be on a panel about race because I had spent 12 years in a multi-ethnic church in a community that was only 24% white, a very diverse congregation. It was me, three black pastors. And in the midst of that conversation, one of the black pastors said to me, listen, Josh, I just, I just want to paint a picture for you to help you to understand something. I'm just stating the facts. He said, I've got a son that just got his driver's license. And let me tell you about some of the conversations I'm having with him to know how to respond when he gets pulled over and to know the dangers that might be there. And as I begin to listen, all of a sudden my heart began to break because I thought about something I'd never thought about. And then I talked to law enforcement officers and I think about how so many of them are doing what is right but have been lumped in with a bunch of bad ones and they're trying to do what's right and they're trying to stand for what's right. And there are times in which we simply need to stop and listen and allow the fear and the anxiety and the anger of not only the black community, but of our law enforcement to settle in upon us so that we can feel what they are feeling. I mean, this week I've had a number of conversations, not only with law enforcement officers, but with people in our church and people in the black community, and almost every one of them have simply wanted this. Would you just take a moment to just try to understand what I'm feeling? And I just say, oh God, Help us to enter in and to see ourselves as the beaten man. But the final one is this. The cry of my heart is that God would help us to reorient ourselves toward love. To reorient ourselves toward love. 
that in the midst of all of the feeling of empathy, where it has to begin, it has to begin with empathy, we must then act. And I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't know what all of that looks like. And I don't think we rush to a bunch of actions that may not be the right action. But I will say it starts with a few basic things. It starts with not tolerating a hint of racism in any conversation. It begins with when we see something, we do something. It begins with building a relationship with someone that is not like you. If there is some negative emotional response that comes up in your heart when you think about a certain group of people, that's exactly the kind of person you need to pursue and have in your home. But pastor, but, no, no, no. Invite them into your home. Share a meal with them and be quiet for a minute and let them talk. There are some basic things that we can begin to do to listen, to enter into someone else's pain, to begin to reorient ourselves towards authentic neighborly love. Now listen, the only hope that we have in, in all of this is that God would one by one begin to use that Holy Spirit scalpel and the word of God to just open us up and expose us, to allow our emotions to be a window into our heart. It's a long process, but it starts today. Because God wants to do open heart surgery. He wants us to see who we are. He wants us to begin having a conversation. He wants us to feel absolutely broken hearted over what is going on all around us. He wants us to feel this. And one of the ways it starts today is by some of you recognizing that you need a heart transplant. You need a new heart. That there is no real authentic love for God because you have noticed there is no authentic love for neighbor. That could it be that in this moment, God is exposing to you that you are not as authentic as you think you are. And if that's true, Praise God for exposing it to you. He has opened up your heart and he has said you need a new heart. And the good news of that is this, that's what Jesus does. He gives new hearts. He makes you born again. He can take out your heart of stone that is hardened and calloused and racist and nationalistic and he can replace it with a heart of flesh that beats with his love and empathy and mercy. He can give you a new heart. You simply humble yourself before God, acknowledge where your heart is and ask him to save you. You call upon the name of the Lord and you say, Lord, would you come? I surrender myself to you. I trust your death as the payment for my sins. You are good, I am not. I receive your goodness. I trust in you. I choose to follow you. Give me a new heart. And at that moment, God will do it. Some of you need a new heart. Some of you, need a broken heart. It could be a very good prayer to pray at this moment that God would break your heart and let tears come from your eyes. It could be that you are so callous that the prayer you really need to pray this morning is God, break my heart. What a good and right and holy and godly, courageous prayer. God, I want a broken heart. Could it be that some of you simply need to pray for a tender heart? 1 Peter 3.8 says, be sympathetic and tender-hearted one with another. God, would you give me a soft and tender and kind and compassionate heart? It's not there. 
God, I want you to give me a tender heart. But all I know is this, is God is in the business of fixing hearts. And hearts are the problem here. Mine and yours. And it also begins with God first fixing the hearts of the people in the church. And when God begins to fix the hearts of the people in the church, the culture begins to see the difference and are drawn to Jesus Christ because they have broken hearts too. So God, would you begin with us? Would you begin with me and my heart? Open it up, do your work. And may every single one of you allow the Lord to open your heart, show you what is there. And may you then call upon him to get a new heart, a broken heart, or a more tender heart that we might be a loving neighbor. Let's pray together this morning.